Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In January of 2020, Bloomberg City Lab published an article about a new study from Pittsburgh researchers naming the best and worst cities for Black women. Among cities with at least 100,000 Black women, Cleveland came in dead last in terms of livability. In this city with a nearly 50% Black population, this news drops like a bomb. And reactions were mixed. Do you think Cleveland is really the worst for Black women? And what do you say? Uh, I say... It depends on the person uh, I ask. When I dropped it in one of my Black girl group chats, the emojis were just eye rolls. I'm not surprised. Not even a little. It's, it's heartbreaking and also embarrassing. Is it like this everywhere? Is it me? <laughs> like This city will make or break you. City of Black women that are looking around at their outcomes, their future, their past, and saying, this city makes me anxious. If anybody's out there listening in Cleveland, please get out. On Living for We, we talk to Cleveland's Black women from all walks of life, from the CEO of one of our major healthcare systems to self-starting entrepreneurs, judges, lawyers, doctors, artists, students, and mothers who've experienced loss. We share stories from these women as change makers and architects of their own futures, celebrating their victories, challenges, and personal growth along the way. So is it really true what they say? Is Cleveland deserving of the least livable title? And what can we do to make lasting improvements for Black women in our city? I'm Marlene Harris-Taylor, and this is Living for We, a project of connecting the dots between race and health from IdeaStream Public Media. This grass lot used to be an elementary school. This is where my mother and my aunts went to elementary school, and so did I. Oh, so the school was right across the street from your house. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm with Leah Hudno outside her grandfather's home in Cleveland's Lee Harvard neighborhood. You may remember Leah from Episode 5, one of our workplace episodes. She's very proud that her granddad purchased this home when it was newly built in 1969. I walked out the door and went to school. I would come home for lunch. Um, bring my dog out for recess. That's why I tell people, like, you know, I grew up in the city of Cleveland, but that what that means to certain people is not always what our experiences were. I feel like I had a childhood that rivaled any suburban childhood. By the 1970s, Lee Harvard was the destination of choice for Black middle-class families. With its own thriving business district and robust community culture, Lee Harvard was teeming with young professionals and their families. Now there's a big empty field across from Leah's family home. But that lot used to be Leah's elementary school. Though it may be gone now, that doesn't change the wonderful memories from her time attending Emil B. DeZose Elementary School. And I was just talking to some of my childhood friends about our elementary school. We built a playground. We had a garden. You know, we would come and pick vegetables from the garden on the weekend. Um, and we just had things that now it has all these terms for it, like environmental justice and, you know, all these things. But then we were just at school. Um, but we had a black woman principal. We had these banging Black History Month, like, 
theatrical productions <laughs> like uh, the parking lot. And you see how big the lot is? Yeah. The lot would be full of cars. Where was the parking lot? So like this half was the parking lot and that half was where the school was. Um, and we would be jam-packed for things like Black History Month productions. And we would have costuming and design and we would be the Supremes and all these different Motown acts. But we were. So why did they tear the school down? As a school board member, I have to be careful about my answer. Don't give me the PC answer. Give me the real answer. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> Cleveland is declining in terms of uh, enrollment in public schools. And so about half of, there's about 67,000 school-aged children in the city of Cleveland right now. They couldn't have repurposed the building for something they else? They could have. I, could, I tell you, the reason it just like kind of really strikes me is that in my hometown, Toledo, same thing. Yep. Dwindling population. The school that I went to, the elementary school, is a lot just like this mm -hmm. now. So I just, it's just sad. That it it's is so many It's a familiar story. Dwindling population numbers and chronic underfunding leading to shutdown of schools and in the process, the complete destruction of black cultural hubs like Leah's school in Lee Harvard, which closed in 2012. Black schools are taking a hit in Cleveland and have been for a while. Cleveland Metropolitan Schools have been consistently underperforming and unsupported, leading to a major exodus of Black families of means to private schools and surrounding suburbs. Despite Leah's ideal upbringing in the Lee Harvard neighborhood, she later found that the education she received in Cleveland public schools paled in comparison to the education kids in Cleveland suburbs were receiving. It all hit home after she went to college. I went to Whitney M. Young, which at the time was a blue ribbon, gifted and talented junior high school. That you were gifted and talented. So says Cleveland Public Schools <laughs> in the 90s, yes. Um, that's, that's awesome. Yes, and I graduated from Cleveland School of the Arts. And I had decided early on that I wanted to go to a HBCU because I spent a lot of my free time watching the Different World reruns. I think the Different World was responsible for, for yeah, so many people for going to HBCUs. Yes. <laughs> I remember sending in my $25 application fee. I worked at Zagara's after school, and um, I was waiting on the bus to take me from School of the Arts to my job. And my mother called me and read the acceptance letter over the singular cell phone. Yeah, um, And I was really excited about that. Again, not a lot of guidance. The programs that they have now weren't really in place um, in terms of FAFSA guidance and things like that. My grandfather and my mother dropped me off and my grandfather gave me $20 and he told me, be a lady. And they drove off. And that was it. And now I was in Washington, D.C., though. And, On your own. And <laughs> I was determined to stay. Howard is a magical place. It's just, it's, it's called the Mecca for a reason. And it reminded me of elementary school. Times 10,000 Black folks just walking around on a mission, well-dressed, they smell good, their hair is popping, and it's chicken on Wednesdays. And I'm sitting next to a senator, and I'm sitting next to a biochemist, and it inspired me to want to step my own game up. Unfortunately, though, when I got to Howard, I was quickly told that I had to take remedial courses at Howard. And so in June, you graduate, you're applauded, you have all these honors ribbons and AP ribbons and da -da -da -da, you know. And then by August, they're like, yeah, we know you broke and you already don't have the money to pay for the regular course load. And I remember going to the yard and calling my mother and I remember telling her, I got to come home. I don't get tutored. I do the tutoring. 
And she was like, you get tutored today. Like, you can't just leave because it's not going the way that you you would like it to go. And so that was the first moment that I had actually had an educational challenge. And so you had that, but you were like, oh, my God, I got to take remedial classes. I had that with the added pressure of cost and, you know, you leave home like Leah's going to Howard. She's always been smart. And then you get there like, girl, you need to take an extra course because you don't know this, this or that. I got connected with some students who were from Cleveland Heights who went to Howard. What I realized, I traded in my lived experience for their academic experience. They didn't know how to wash their clothes. They didn't know how to catch a transit system. Let me say it like this. When Barbara Bird Bennett got on the news and said that because of the financial constraints, Cleveland children would be on the RTA. I was 11 years old and I got on the bus and it was a big deal in my household. And I remember my uncle saying, she's gonna have to ride it because they're not having school buses. So we might as well let her start now. And I remember at that time, my uncle told me all of these like street rules of like what you do when you get on the bus. You sit here, don't put that Walkman on your ear, always be able to see all four corners. If you walk, turn around so many feet, you know, all these rules. Be alert. Be alert, be smart. And, you know, in his words, don't be a dummy. So you got an early education in street smarts. Yes, which my now Howard classmates did not. And I was trying to figure out how I have a public education 10 minutes away from them and they can tutor me in calculus. But I don't know it, but I'm gifted and talented. Leah may have envied the high school education some of her college classmates received in Cleveland Heights, but Black families living in supposedly diverse Cleveland suburbs deal with their own struggles against unequal treatment for their kids. Another school system on the east side, Cleveland Heights, grapples with equity issues in honors classes, according to our next guest, Tate Manning. Tate is in college now, but just a couple years ago, she was one of the few Black students in the advanced classes at her high school. In Cleveland Heights, a primarily Black school, I was in mostly like advanced courses, AP courses, and I was also involved in band. I happen to interact with like a lot of white people because in Cleveland Heights, like white people are the majority of the advanced classes, even though it is a primarily black school. And so I think in those settings, I experienced um, a lot of microaggressions. And just in, in, in conversations about race, I saw that even the white people in Cleveland Heights who consider themselves liberal and interact with black people, they still don't totally get it. And they're still ignorant to a lot of things that like I can see and other black women can see that they don't understand. Well, that's a really interesting dynamic. You have a majority black school, right? And majority white honors and AP. What's that about? Part of it is they discourage a lot of black students from joining those classes. And also white students are in, in their home life and in school provided with a lot more resources to advance in their education. And they're, they're already like two steps ahead at Cleveland Heights. A lot of people place more value on the white students' education and they're given a lot more attention by teachers. You saw that personally? I felt that personally. Um, I saw that with my friends who were denied opportunities to be in those classes, even if they wanted to, and even if they were capable of taking on that workload and that 
course content, they were dismissed by teachers and counselors who didn't believe that they could perform well in those classes or perform as well as white students. In those classes, white students will also dominate conversations about racism and like just different social issues. And nobody really sees anything wrong with it a lot of the time because the teachers themselves are white as well. And so they don't see what's wrong with that either, which is also what I appreciate about going to Howard is that it's very different there. Heights, I saw a lot of that and it was incredibly frustrating for me to see them, I don't know, give opinions on things that they didn't really know anything about and they felt very confident in their answers and their opinions. And I just I just didn't see it the same way as them. I think a lot of black students, especially black students that they didn't deem palatable enough for those classes were discouraged from enrolling in them. So they didn't necessarily tell them you can't take this class, but they told them, I don't think you I don't, I don't think you can take this class. I don't think you're ready to take this class. I don't think you're smart enough to take this class. It's things like that, where it's like, even if they want to take the course, they lose all their confidence as soon as they hear that from a counselor. Steering and discouragement from teachers and counselors can make a giant impact on Black students' confidence, both academically and personally. Chi-Chi and Kimra, one of our partners at Enlightened Solutions, is also a former school teacher. She says there's no easy fix. What did you hear from the women who you surveyed and spoke with about education? Black women in Cleveland have been using education, obviously, as a means to an end. Our parents, our parents' parents, everybody in any Black family will tell you, you, you especially as a woman, stay in the books and get to where you need to be. Oh, yeah. They, you dr- they drill it into they you. They drill it into you. And whether it is a formal education or getting your trait, right? So studying to be a cosmetologist or a nail tech or whatever you end up being, it's study so that you can get the job and the career that makes you money, right? Yes. Black women go in very clear-eyed and very steely focused about their education, but the folks that are providing that education don't see the seriousness with which Black women take their education. Look, steering and discouragement were the two most prevalent themes that we saw in education. Folks not believing that Black women could attain or surpass their own dreams, meaning you're asking a young Black girl what she wants to do. She says she wants to be a doctor and you tell her you can be an STNA. Or you're asking a young black girl like, oh, what do you like to do? She likes to draw. And you're like, well, you're not going to get a career doing that, right? Mm -hmm. That lack of knowing that we have brilliance within this city and that brilliance is encapsulated in black women and black girls. It is, to me, the most unsurprising, but the most disappointing thing because it deals with our future. It deals with our economic prosperity and it deals with exactly what generations are going to look like here in this shrinking city, this shrinking region. What exactly are we going to do when all of our brilliance that is trained here leaves? Particularly at PWIs, predominantly white institutions, where Black educators are often sparse or non-existent. There's a lack of understanding or cultural competency, as they say, between students and teachers. That's why people like our next guest, Dr. Shamara Arki, are so important. Dr. Arki is an assistant professor of Pan-African Studies at Kent State University and co-editor of the book, Teaching Beautiful, Brilliant Black Girls. Overall, how are Black girls doing in the classrooms? Oh, that's the question. We are not okay. We are not okay. 
you know, while the goal of my research is to position classrooms as these spaces of radical transformation, we got to tell the truth about who they were really designed for and what they were designed to do. To come into this space that was not built for me, that was intentionally actually designed to kill me, to annihilate my people, to keep us where we are on the bottom of everything, every social structure. You name it, we're at the bottom. We're at the bottom. That's the state of education and many other social structures for us as Black women. But here we are, killing it <laughs> in right. these spaces designed to kill us. Right, and that's that's what's so fascinating, not just to me as a Black woman. I mean, I love the fact that we're killing it, right? But I'm sure it's like perplexing. Very. To the world. Very, very, <laughs> right? Very. So while we are doing well in particular spaces, even those of us who are doing well are struggling every single day to stay afloat. We do what we do. Like when we show up as our full selves, we make magic. So that's not the hard part. The hard part is having to deal with the consistent oppressive structures, the microaggressions, the consistent macroaggressions. Ain't no more micros. <laughs> <laughs> One of the guests on the podcast talked about how she grew up in Cleveland. Mm. And even though she was like the honor student at her school, when she got to college, they're like, you need to take some remedial classes. Thinking about the scenario that you just said and thinking about those Black girls who have figured out how to do school. Bell Hooks taught us that there's a difference between schooling and education. Mm -hmm. You are understanding this at a superior cognitive level. Like your cognition is all the way. So that's education. What you don't know how to do is school. You don't know how to study to take this test. Right. That's not measuring your cognition. <laughs> right. She, she hadn't been taught in those classrooms mm -hmm. in Cleveland how mm -hmm. to take the test. Mm -hmm. The system that we're in, we call it an education system, but it's a school system. People are packaged by age, right? As right. if they're, you know, this batch you come through, not according to what you like or how you learn or right. where you're from. But it's structured, you're right, structured by age. Everybody's right. not the same maturity level or they'll say, well, this student, Michaela, is reading at an 11th grade level in the fifth grade. They're still going to pass her just on to the sixth grade. Right, because passing her along to the 11th grade would interrupt their whole system. It would dismantle their whole system and say, this can't be working. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of allowing Michaela to be the brilliant, bright beam of light that we all know that she is, including herself, she's lumped with this group and sent down the conveyor belt. And so maybe sometime, at some point, Michaela will learn how to do school. Maybe at some point, someone will see Michaela as this bright beam of light that she is and say, hey, have you heard about this program or this scholarship? But what happens if nobody encounters Michaela? She continues going through the system. She becomes disenfranchised. Other things become more important to school. Other things become more entertaining, more enticing, more intellectually stimulating. Because she's on the conveyor belt. You know, when we have these subjective opportunities that mm -hmm. are given to some students and not to others, when mm -hmm. it's up to the counselors to decide mm -hmm. who gets to go into the gifted program, mm -hmm. do they pick Michaela? Do they, right? 
because Michaela uh, is bored in class. She was probably brushing her baby hair. (laughs) (laughs) And she's been sent to the (laughs) office saying that she's grooming in class (laughs) because there's this lack of cultural competence. Right, right. right. What do we have to do for for Michaela, for all the other young black girls, for all the young black boys in these disenfranchised communities going to schools that are not resourced. Mm-hmm. It's it's so easy for me to sit here and say, burn it down, dismantle the system. <laughs> but then we have to build something else, right? So whether we tear this down or not should not affect the, the rate, the tenacity at which we are educating our own students, right? We have to educate our students in our homes. Mothers are first teachers, bringing that back as a foundation of how we educate. So understanding that there is this level of history and this level of legacy in everything that we're learning. There were people here before us who helped us get to this place. We're here. We have a duty to do something because there's someone coming after us. I just want to ask if you had any final thoughts about Black women in Cleveland traversing this space of a city that is not particularly livable for them. All right. To my sisters. As a native Clevelander born and raised on Huff Avenue, I want to say, sis, I see you. I need you. And keep going. Together is the only way that we will win. And I know in Cleveland, it's hard. There are those of us that have been afforded opportunities to move through systems and institutions with favor. We have a duty to hold the line for all of us. And holding that line means lifting as we climb. That doesn't mean stop. Understand your place in the liberation of our folks as a leader. Be a warrior. Don't be a soldier. A soldier takes orders. Some of us, we can take it. Everybody can take it. Those were the gifts and talents that we were blessed with. They came through our mitochondrial DNA and somebody's going to come up with that research soon. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep going. Know who you are. Do your work and bring a sis with you because together is the only way we will win. So what can Black women do when they find themselves struggling at school, whether that be K-12, undergraduate, or even graduate school? Dr. Angela Neal Barnett, our mental health expert and a beloved college educator, is here to teach us a lesson or two about how Black girls and women can navigate an education system that wasn't designed for them. Why do we continue to believe that Black kids can't do the work or Black kids won't want to do the work, which I think is even worse. Right. Is it about perhaps the parents don't know? One of the things that happens is that white women share with each other about how I did this and how to do things. And and we don't tend to do that kind of, of, of thing. In addition to being the mental health expert for Living for We, I am a college professor. Anybody Black who comes to me, I'm going to, again, share how you do this. We don't know what we don't know. 
I could see this. Leah describes her grandfather and her mother taking her down to Howard, her grandfather handing her that $20 bill, and mm-hmm. then driving off. <laughs> and I cannot tell you how many times that happens to black students because, again, the parents, the grandparents— just don't know. They're just so know. proud. My baby's going to college. And, and if they're not, you know, if you're a first generation yes. college student, yes. the parents just don't know. They just don't know. It may be that you don't see a black faculty member until you're uh, a sophomore or junior. But ask, is there a black faculty member I can talk to? They can just walk in and hold a conversation with that faculty member. It doesn't have to be about my grades. It doesn't have to be about grades. How'd you become a psychologist? How'd you become a biologist? How'd you become a journalist? Those types of questions. What do I need to do? So for other Black women who are in the academy and working on their master's degrees and working on their PhDs, what advice do you have for them to protect their spirits and their own psychological health? I would say this. It is hard. Graduate school is hard. And if it wasn't, everybody would be doing it. Okay. And there are times when you're going to feel like, what made me think I could do this? And that's usually a time when, you know, the professor has said something to you and the 20-year-old car you're driving has has died and your friends just got offered an $80,000 job and you're making $15,000. But there is a purpose that you have that you may not have even uncovered yet, okay? But it is important that you keep rising and go on to see what the end is going to be. And the end is going to be fantastic. And 10 years from now, when we're doing Living for We, a decade later, you'll be the mental health expert. (laughs) (laughs) If you're going to do higher education and you're going to do a support system, you have to have some, you have to have somebody black in your support system. You have to have somebody who truly understands what it means to be black, to be a black woman and doing uh, an advanced degree or even an undergraduate degree. Uh, for Particularly for those of you who are first generation, your parents, your, your family, the neighbors know how to support you. But they don't know the nuances of education. And you need somebody Black who understands the nuances. You know, it, but the thing is, it's so important that we get this right. Because if we don't get this education thing right, finding ways to support and elevate Black students from preschool through graduate school we're going to continue this cycle. Absolutely. And we, how many people, how many Black women do we know who did a, a year, two years uh, at college and never finished? They'll tell you it's about the money, but if they have the support, then they would know about the places where they could have Get found, the money. You could yeah. have gotten the money. 
We have to get it right. And those of us who know have to come together and share that information. Like a, a church has a insider's view of higher education uh, or what you need to do to go to college. Well, like you said, even at the high school level, yeah. it's like, well, you know what? I got my child into this honors program. Yes. You could do this yeah. too. Share the information. I don't think I worked harder than when my daughter was in high school. <laughs> you know, in terms of making sure that she was getting the same resources as the, the non-Black kids in the school. Again, there's a reason that we are kept out of the loop, that we are kept out of that knowledge, which would help all of our Black kids soar. To any Black woman who's out there, who's thinking about throwing in the towel, don't ask. How many universities and colleges are within the sound of our, our, our voice? Like 25? Uh, I can't even count them up. There's yeah. so many. So there is someone at your institution who can help. You are not a lost cause. I do want to say, so oftentimes what happens is because of family obligations, we think we have to sit out a semester. I see. Again, ask, because there may, that your university, your college may have ways where you can continue to take classes as well as help out the family member. If money is a problem, you can tell I'm very passionate about this. That's um, okay. I love um, passion. If money is a, a problem, ask. Ask. There are people who donate for people who might be in the situation that you are in. Just ask. There's such a need in all areas. We need more Black lawyers. We need more Black psychologists. We need more Black social workers. We need more Black nurses. We need more Black doctors. We need more Black IT people. And you can do it. And if you are at Kent State University, find your way to Kent Hall. Okay, tell Pat you're looking for Dr. Angela and she will direct you to my office. And, you know, I'll give you a word. Next time on Living For We. What do I like most about Judy? <laughs> Let me count the ways. We're talking about dating, relationships, and love for Black women in Cleveland. I'm so lucky. God really blessed me. She's like the lighthouse to my mental fog. Like, it's just really easy to love Chi-Chi. Ask me what I'm drinking. <laughs> like, I don't do this little freak. Listen, this makeup and this look takes a minute to get together. Yeah. My granddaughter is supposed to be getting married. And she said, you know what? He's white. I said, does he have a father that's single? I take his father. Thank you to everyone who continues to leave us voicemails about their experiences as Black women in Cleveland. Here's a message from one of our listeners. 
I am an entrepreneur from Shaker Heights. I was someone who left Cleveland for college, went to Clark Atlanta University, and I did not return until my father became sick and unfortunately passed away a month later. Cleveland was just not as inclusive as I needed it to be. However, I am an entrepreneur, and coming back home ended up being a big blessing to me because I was able to tap into my mother's resources, who is also an entrepreneur. I have no social life in Cleveland. By the time we're our age, people are majority married off, and nobody wants to come to Cleveland. And I, again, I found when I moved back um, amazing opportunities here professionally. I was able to skyrocket in my business. The Midwest is a beautiful place to raise children. I just have a craving for a D.C. chocolate city Atlanta Chocolate City, where so many of us are doing so many things. If you're a Black woman in Cleveland and want to share your thoughts with us directly, our hotline is open. Leave us a voicemail at 216-223-8312. That's 216-223-8312. And you may just hear yourself on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can find more episodes of Living for We on ideastream.org slash livingforwe and wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, letting us know what you think about Cleveland and what you're interested in hearing us talk about on the show. Living for We is part of the Connecting the Dots Between Race and Health initiative from Ideastream Public Media, produced by Evergreen Podcasts and made possible by generous support from the Dr. Donald J. Goodman and Ruth Weber Goodman Philanthropic Fund of the Cleveland Foundation. The Living for We team includes myself, Marlene Harris-Taylor, host and executive producer, Hannah Ray Leach, our lead producer, and Hey Fran Hey as producer and creative director. Chichi and Kimra and Bethany Studenik of Enlightened Solutions are our researchers, data analysts, and community partners. We get production help from Stephanie Chekolinski. Original music, including our theme song, is by Cleveland artist Afi Scruggs. Our mix engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. We'll see you soon.